This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to VOA Africa. Thank you for joining us. I'm Yehiyaz Wuhib in Washington. Here's what's coming up on African News Tonight. What we have decided to do is test our criminal laws as the backbone of the rule of law in this country as part of our constitutional order to affirm climate justice. That's Vishwas Satgar of the Climate Change Charter Movement, one of the activists asking police to charge South African leaders with criminal neglect for allegedly failing to prepare for recent floods. Details coming up. Also, a pair of Kenyans led an African sweep of the men and women divisions of the Boston Marathon today. These stories and more on African News tonight. We start with our top story. Seven men appeared in court today in Johannesburg on charges related to the murder of Elvis Niati, a Zimbabwe national stoned and burned to death by an anti-immigrant mob. Journalist Tuso Kobalo was at the court today and spoke with VOA's Kate Pond Dawson about the initial hearing. In court today, uh, seven suspects uh, arrested for the alleged murder of Elvis Nyati appeared at, at Randbeck Massachusetts Court. Uh, the court was told that in total, 14 suspects were arrested, but the other seven could not appear in court because the investigating officer could not link them direct to the case. Uh, the court being told that they'll be pursued whenever any evidence linking them arises. But um, the court was told that uh, the seven uh, that appeared today uh, face um, uh, cases uh, murder, uh, robbery, uh, attempted murder, kidnapping, uh, causing bodily harm, and uh, attempted kidnapping. So these are the, are the cases that uh, they were presented in court, which they are facing. And the prosecutor saying this, they believe this was premeditated, something that they planned to do, and uh, they ended up doing it. So they were asked to return to court on Friday and bring uh, back their legal representatives. They were remanded in custody because nothing measures had said that she doesn't want to discuss anything with them uh, until they bring uh, their legal representatives. Uh, then that's when they will argue for bail. They will argue all the cases and any other things that they have for currently, and uh, they've been remanded in custody. Now, I understand there was there were very few people in court today. Why was that? And, and what reaction did you see at court? For whatever reasons, and for the first time for such a big case, there were very few uh, people who knew about it, even the, the media. Uh, people started knowing it late uh, in the afternoon. Uh, that the case was there. So there was almost no media except just a few of us there. And even with the people, the family of Nyati was not there. I believe they were not uh, uh, informed or they are still in Zimbabwe bearing their relatives. Uh, but there was a handful of people uh, who are relatives of some of the accused that were there. We could hear one woman uh, crying at the top of her voice uh, when they were remanded in custody. And uh, in fact, some of the relatives approached us as media uh, saying, why are we covering this story? Why do not cover uh, the deaths of their South African families that were killed allegedly uh, by foreign nationals. So uh, the mood was uh, a mixed one because there were very few people, but uh, the few that were there and uh, not looking happy at all that they were remanded in custody. That was reporter Tuso Komalo speaking with my colleague Kate Pondawson.
Over the past several months, South Africa has seen growing anti-foreigner sentiment, in part fueled by anger over the country's unemployment rate, which tops 35%. Some South Africans blame foreigners for taking jobs from them and for committing serious crimes. Niati was killed when protesters went to the Dysplut Township in Johannesburg on the night of April 6th and began attacking foreigners. In South Africa, climate change advocacy groups have filed criminal complaints against the government for failing to take practical action to address the climate crisis, which they allege amounts to unlawful negligence. The legal action follows floods in KwaZulu-Natal province that have caused around 450 deaths so far. President Cyril Ramaphosa said the disaster was part of climate change. A recent report by the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change warned of catastrophic effects, including in southern Africa, should greenhouse gas emissions not be cut drastically by 2025. Darren Taylor reports. International environmental agencies such as the Global Carbon Atlas say South Africa is the world's 12th biggest source of greenhouse gases. It still burns coal to generate electricity, emitting about 470 million metric tons of carbon dioxide into the air every year. Scientists, including those at the United States Congress-backed Global Change Research Program say gases like CO2 trap the sun's heat in the Earth's atmosphere. They say this is causing global warming, which in turn is sparking radical weather. We are living in this world of climate extremes. And we are going to have more floods, we're going to have more droughts, we're going to have more cyclones, we're going to have more wildfires. That means our societies have to be ready. Vishwas Satgar of the climate change charter movement says South Africa's nowhere near ready for the future. He's one of the activists asking the police to charge President Ramaphosa and his ministers with criminal neglect. They claim the government's failed to keep promises made to limit carbon emissions when it signed the Paris Climate Accord in 2016. By continuing to pollute the air, says Satgar, the government has contributed to the recent spike in extreme weather, such as the floods in KwaZulu-Natal. We didn't have to have this kind of loss if our state was serious about the climate crisis. What we have decided to do is test our criminal laws as the backbone of the rule of law in this country, as part of our constitutional order to affirm climate justice. This is going to be the first time that we are trying to do this in South Africa. We've been to two police stations. One charge sheet has been filled out in Mayville. Of course, the police didn't fully comprehend and understand what we were trying to do. But in the end, one of the station commanders got it. Over the past 25 years, the government's made regular commitments to cut CO2 emissions. Yet its own environmental department reports emissions increased by more than 10% between 2000 and 2017. The South African Weather Service says individual weather events that happen over short periods cannot be directly attributed to climate change. Its records show, however, that severe weather events are increasing in southern Africa. In recent months, three cyclones have hit Mozambique, with two tropical storms devastating Madagascar. 
There were also serious floods in KwaZulu-Natal in 2017 and 2019. Satgar says such tragedies will increase in the near future, unless South Africa phases out the use of fossil fuels. Every gram, every ton, every megaton of carbon and greenhouse gases is going to make a difference between us surviving or us being extinct as a species. The Ramaphosa administration says it will appoint scientists to study whether its carbon emissions are contributing to extreme weather. Satkar says that's pointless, as the research already has been done. He says what's needed is a policy to adapt to climate change and to reduce the use of carbon fuels. Legal experts say the criminal complaint against the government has little chance of succeeding. Satkar says it's already a success in that it pressures the state to adapt or die. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. Cameroon's military has deployed hundreds of troops to its eastern border with the Central African Republic after car rebels this month abducted at least 35 people. The military says the rebels are targeting merchants, farmers and ranchers and stealing money and cattle. Moki Edwin Kenzeka reports from Yaoundé. Cameroon's military says scores of troops on Monday raided villages and forests on its eastern border with the Central African Republic to free civilians held captive by CAR rebels. Speaking via a messaging application, Colonel Dominique Njoka says he led troops on the rescue mission in Bere, a border administrative unit where rebels were holding hostages. When we arrived, unfortunately, they saw us, so they opened fire. But we reacted immediately, and uh, in the confrontation, they ran away. Before running away, they killed one hostage, and one was seriously wounded. So he died. However, out of the seven, we liberated five arrived safely. We keep on asking the population to cooperate, to give us information at the appropriate time so that we can react. Njoka says some of the rebels escaped across the porous border, while others are still hiding in forests in Cameroon. He says they deployed hundreds of troops to the area to flush out the rebels who have abducted at least 35 civilians in Cameroon in the past three weeks. CAR authorities say since March, fighting with rebels has increased. The UN peacekeeping mission to CAR MINUSCA last week said rebels pushed out of several towns were hiding on the border with Cameroon. Minuska said the CAR rebels were fighting to control border towns, including Bamari and Alindao. Authorities say the rebels are crossing the border to escape fighting with CAR's military and to steal and abduct for ransom. 50-year-old Cameroonian cattle rancher Buba Alami says his son was among the freed hostages. He spoke on Cameroonian media, Canal Day TV and Equinox Radio. Alami says a strange visitor informed him that his 20-year-old son was in captivity in the forest on the border with the Central African Republic. He says the stranger told him the captors wanted at least 
a $5,000 ransom for his release, but did not tell him where and how the ransom should be paid. Alami says he spent two sleepless nights not knowing how to get in touch with either the abductors or his son. Cameroon's military says they were able to free the five hostages after villagers informed them where the rebels were hiding in the forest. Cameroon shares a more than 900-kilometer-long border with the Central African Republic. Cameroon this month sent its chief of defense to the border area to mobilize troops to stop the rebels from entering its territory. The Central African Republic descended into violence in 2013 when then-President Francois Bozizé was ousted by the Seleka, a coalition from the Muslim minority that accused him of breaking peace deals. The CAR government in 2020 accused Bozizé of supporting rebel attacks, which he denied. The ongoing fighting has forced close to a million Central Africans to flee neighboring countries, including Cameroon, Chad, the Democratic Republic of Congo, and Nigeria. Moki Edwin Kinzaka for VOA News, Yaoundé, Cameroon. Two drunken soldiers have killed 15 people in separate attacks in the volatile Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. The French news agency AFP reported that one soldier killed eight passengers and wounded seven aboard a boat in Lake Tanganyika yesterday. Officials in Ituru province said the other soldier gunned down a colonel, his bodyguard, and five civilians in Bamboo in Jugu territory Sunday. Army spokesman Mark Elongo said one of the drunk soldiers was lynched by angry residents before he could be arrested and died from his injuries. The Eastern DRC has been racked by violence linked to numerous armed groups for the last 25 years. The government has put Ituru and North Kivu provinces under a state of siege since last May, but security forces have failed to restore peace. Mali's ruling junta yesterday received two more combat helicopters as well as surveillance radar from Russia. The Western African country is tackling a bloody jihadist insurgency. The French news agency AFP quoted Army Chief of Staff General Omar Diara as saying in a statement that the delivery was a sign of a very fruitful partnership with the Russian state. The latest consignment brings to eight the known number of helicopters that Moscow has provided to Mali's ruling junta. Russia has also supplied military instructors to Mali. Former colonial power France and the United States say they are operatives from Russia's Wagner Security Group. Mali's rapprochement with the Kremlin has prompted French forces and their European allies to announce their exit from the country. Some U.S. foreign policy experts say Russian President Vladimir Putin's actions in Libya and now Ukraine reveal that a global disorder is replacing the world order that emerged at the end of World War II. VOA senior analyst Mohammed al-Shanawi has the details. Nearly two months ago, 
Russia invaded neighboring Ukraine, and that war is growing on. But for years in Libya, Russia has been supporting Khalifa Haftar and his Eastern Libyan National Army. Haftar's push to take full control of the country has hindered United Nations efforts to reach a political solution in Libya through establishing a government of national accord in 2016. Ambassador Jonathan Weiner, former U.S. Special Envoy to Libya, has witnessed Russia's role in Libya. We began to realize that Moscow was preparing to deliver what eventually became 12 billion dinars of fake currency to Eastern separatists who weren't really quite ready to agree to a government of national accord after all, but wanted to shut down the process. When Libyans agreed to hold elections to create a unified country, some experts say Russia caused a rift among voters by helping the son of former dictator Muammar Gaddafi, Saif al-Islam Gaddafi, mount an election campaign. Disputes over his candidacy complicated the election process and voting has been delayed. At a recent public seminar, Ambassador Weiner said one pillar of the world order was a common belief that stability is in everyone's interest. He said that was one of the reasons that former U.S. President George W. Bush wanted to go after Saddam Hussein in Iraq as he was seen as a destabilizing force in the Middle East. However, Weiner says the U.S. invasion of Iraq proved to be a destabilizer. The last four American presidents each taught Vladimir Putin uh, different reasons why he might be able to go after Ukraine, and one of them was perhaps the U.S. invasion of Iraq. Jason Pack is a Libya researcher and author of a new book titled Libya and the Global Enduring Disorder. He argues that the inability of the U.N., U.S., and the European Union to lead coherently in Libya allowed Russia, Turkey, and regional players to have a proxy war in Libya. That, he says, permitted an enduring world disorder. At the recent seminar, Pak said, from Ukraine to Syria to Yemen, the past decade has seen a trend of non-Western powers violating international norms and treaty commitments. Western governments tacitly accept the new facts on the ground these illegal incursions produce, ignoring opportunities to enforce international law. Pak says that factored into Russia's planning to invade Ukraine. He sees Putin thinking. I thought that the West backed down over the red line in Syria, or I thought that they backed down when I annexed Crimea. Maybe they'll back down again. Pak said the world is witnessing not a war for Ukraine, but Putin's war to push for a world of self-reinforcing disorder, replacing the world order that prevailed under U.S. leadership from 1949 until about a decade ago. Pak said the United Nations has shown itself powerless to stop crises like Libya and Ukraine, and the United Nations Security Council, which is mandated to preserve peace, cannot respond to the war in Libya or in Ukraine because Russia enjoys veto power on the council. Pak concludes that Moscow benefits from instability in both Libya and Ukraine because it expands migration flows into Europe, costing the European Union nations vast resources and eventually destabilizing European politics. Mohamed al Shinawi, VOA News, 
Washington. In parts of northern Ivory Coast, militiamen known as Dozos are supplementing state security amid the threat of further instability. Analysts warn local intercommunal tensions are on the rise, while groups linked to Islamic State and Al-Qaeda, based in Mali and Burkina Faso, have crossed the border to carry out attacks. Henry Wilkins reports from Korongo. In the north of Ivory Coast, local militiamen called Dozos drive along the country's dusty roads where they help the state keep the locals safe. Unlike the nation's prosperous south, development, security and rule of law have struggled to reach here. Armed groups linked to Islamic State and Al-Qaeda already wreak havoc less than 100 kilometres away, over the country's northern border in Burkina Faso and Mali. As they begin to attack and try to recruit in Ivory Coast, Ivorian analysts say many of the conditions that caused conflict in Burkina Faso and Mali are present here. Lack of state security, development and intercommunal tensions. One dozo who gave his name only as Sikongo said violence and crime led the militias to organise. He says the dozos work with the rangers, the police, the gendarmes. Often the dozos are called upon to join them on missions and they congratulate the dozos for it, he added. In Burkina Faso and Mali, militia groups also emerged in areas now overrun by terror groups where state control was weak. Bakari Watara runs the chapter of the dozos in Korogo, a major city in the Ivorian north. He believes the government does not have enough resources to install security forces in the smaller villages, especially those that are 25, 50 and 60 kilometres away from the gendarmerie or the police station. Imagine if the population is attacked. By the time the police arrive and intervene, the attackers will already have left, he says. He added that security in the region remains good, however. Traditional leaders in the north also supplement justice and the rule of law by arbitrating disputes. Issa Koulibaly is the traditional leader of Korogo. He says when citizens have a problem that they are unable to deal with, they turn to him. The traditional leader also says development in the north has improved in recent years, although the majority of those living outside of big towns or cities interviewed by VOA disagreed. Another major cause of the conflict in neighbouring countries is tension between herder and farmer communities, which analyst Lucina Diara of the Timbuktu Institute says is also a problem in Ivory Coast. He says the lack of cohesion between herder communities and other communities has not yet seen a very strong response on the part of the state. Arthur Ranga is a military historian at Felix Hufei Boeni University in Abidjan who advises the government on the security situation in the north. He says tensions in the north have not reached a critical state. There is concern, he says, but there's no exodus or displacement yet, because so far the government has been able to give a good military response and is also trying to build a social response. The Ivorian Ministry of Security did not respond to an interview request by VOA. Henry Wilkins for VOA News, Kurogo, Ivory Coast. A pair of Kenyans led an African sweep of the men's and women's divisions of the Boston Marathon today. Perez Jepchirchir aged Ethiopia's Ababel Yesane in a thrilling finish to claim Olympic gold along with the Boston and New York titles. Evans Chibet dominated a stellar field to claim the men's division and his first major victory. 
Jeb Chercher, who won New York in November, finished in two hours, 21 minutes and one second, four seconds ahead of her rival Kenyan Mary Ngugi, finished third. Chebet finished in two hours, six minutes and 51 seconds with compatriots Lawrence Chirono and Benson Kipuruto, second and third. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voanews.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokbilia Baro, thank you again for tuning in and choosing the Voice of America.